I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Picking up where we left off last week. Just covering a few verses here, verses 20 through 23. I thought I'd begin with a little bit of a... Well, it's really a, a sad quote. It's an unfortunate quote that um, that was preached by a very prominent minister um, in America just after Easter in one of his Easter series. He said this, here's what the Jerusalem council was saying to the Gentiles. You're not accountable to the Ten Commandments. You're not accountable to the Jewish law. We're done with that. God has done something new. Thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments because those aren't your commandments. Pretty straightforward, pretty blunt. He does try to cushion some of the, um, I guess, the cushion some of the statement in, in, in his language, but What he says there is essentially that the Old Testament does not really apply to the Gentile. That there are new commandments under the new covenant that we've received from Christ or from his apostles. And so that, uh, and and this was Andy Stanley who was preaching and and said this, and and he used language of unhitching. The Christian church needs to unhitch itself from the Old Testament law. And unfortunately, when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, and this sermon, as we said last week, has a lot of parallels with the Sermon on the Mount. I don't believe it was the exact same message. I believe it was preached in the same region, and it has certainly the same or similar themes. But more than likely, Jesus is just preaching in a a different area, maybe around the same time, and using some of the, the same portions of his Sermon on the Mount. But likewise, many have questioned the relevance of the Sermon on the Mount, suggesting that it was really under for an old covenant people. That is not meant for us today. And so as we come to these passages, I want you to pay attention, pay careful attention to the kind of language Jesus uses, Jesus uses over and over again, which is old covenant language. He's constantly referring to the Old Testament throughout this sermon. And here we'll see it in these few verses as well. I believe Jesus isn't calling us to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, but he's reinforcing the Old Testament law in his teaching. So after selecting the apostles as he's done in verses 12 through 16, he went right back into his teaching and healing ministry. And it's possible that some people were saying, you know, if, if God is capable of healing us, and if we are disciples of Christ, if we're gathering together to follow him and to hear him, why, why are we even suffering to begin with? Right? Why do we experience sickness, pain? Why do we have trials? Why do we suffer? Why are we left in such distressing circumstances Well, I believe that's really what the Beatitudes help us to deal with. Helps us to understand what God is doing. So before we read it, let's ask him for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this 
sermon that was preached probably multiple times. We certainly don't have every word that Jesus spoke in a sermon in the New Testament, in the Gospels. But we see this theme throughout his, his sermons and this reminder of, of who we are, what we've become as followers of, of Christ. So help us to be challenged by this message. Help us to be comforted by the truths of this passage. It's, it's meant to remind his disciples of the blessings that they've received that they already have in Christ. Lord, it's so easy for us to be distracted, to wander, to, to wander away from the truth and to search for our satisfaction elsewhere, to try to save ourselves, to try to, to find joy in this world. And yet, time and time again, the circumstances we find ourselves remind us that our hope is not in this present life, but it's in the one to come. So remind us of that hope even now. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said... Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Amen. This is God's holy word. What we see here, four promises or four reminders of, of who his disciples had become, who his followers, his true followers had become. We begin with this well, this first acknowledges who he's speaking to. Remember, he had come down from uh, appointing the 12, and in verse 17 it said, he came down with those 12, with his apostles, and stood on a level place. This is oftentimes referred to as a sermon on the plain, because he's standing on a, a level place, not a mountain, with a great crowd of his disciples, as well as a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, a seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. We talked about how they were traveling some as much as 100 miles away in order to see him, to meet him, to hear him, as well as to be healed by him. And so he heals them, and then he begins to preach. He begins teaching, and it says specifically that he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. There was great crowds there beyond his disciples. There was his apostles, and then there were his disciples, which is a great gathering, and then there were other peoples from all over. So he's looking specifically at his disciples, those who claim to be followers of him, not just those who are on the fringe, those who are just interested in what he's saying, but he's talking to his disciples here. He's not speaking to the world. These promises that he gives in this passage apply to believers, and he's seeking to be an encouragement to them those who are suffering. And so the first one is, blessed are the poor. 
And you might wonder, is he talking about poor financially, poor spiritually, uh, morally poor? What is he speaking of here? Well, Matthew, you may know, says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Makes it explicit there that he's speaking of a spiritual nature. And I think they're related here. Uh, Jesus is fulfilling <clears throat> the promises of Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, which, you know, he is the, the Messiah. And, and in, just back in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 is quoted right there in the text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus is saying this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There you see a reference to the poor. And I think he has both in mind, those who are physically poor, those who are financially poor, and those who are spiritually poor, those who need to be um, lifted up, who have been humbled by their circumstances. That is what he came to do. Go back to chapter 1, verse 48, and we read this. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Luke is emphasizing the humility, the, the fact that Mary was poor. You'll see again in chapter 7, Luke emphasizing physical poverty. Chapter 7, verse 22, And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Again, in chapter 14, verse 13. We read, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He's got a, he's got a compassion there for those who are poor, physically, financially poor. Um, even in, in Luke 16, in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you have Lazarus being the poor man who is, who is begging, and they both go into... Um, they both die, and, and obviously the rich man is, is seeking for relief, and, and the poor man is now is, is in relief. The, it's, the, their, their statuses have been reversed. Right? The, the poor man is now receiving the reward, and the rich man is in suffering. So I do think Jesus is primarily focused on, on a spiritual poverty. But it's connected directly to a physical poverty. In fact, it's the spiritual benefits that the physically poor are reminded of, right? Those who are in financial poverty are looking to their eternal reward. That's, that's what gives them hope. So he's fulfilling this call upon him as the Messiah. And in fact, Christianity gives hope to the poor. James 2, 5, we read this. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? 
It's not oftentimes the lofty who are chosen. It's those who are on the outskirts of society. And so their poverty causes them to value the kingdom of God. Obviously with an eternal perspective, but also its temporary benefits and blessings of belonging to a new community. See, keeping a view on our eternal inheritance brightens our present condition. Being reminded of what awaits can change our present circumstances so that we do recognize how blessed we currently are, even in spite of our poverty, even in spite of our suffering. So, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And those who are poor oftentimes are also hungry. He goes directly into that next promise. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Again, Matthew refers to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, speaking very clearly of the spiritual nature of this command or this, this promise. And we see that in, in Psalm 107, verses 5 through 9. Someone wandered in desert ways, or some wandered in desert ways, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. See the connection there. They were genuinely hungry and thirsty, wandering in the desert. But it was their soul that fainted, right? It's their spirit spirit that was, that was distressed, that was in despair. Why is God forsaking us? Why are we abandoned? And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. We see that cycle throughout the judges as we're going through this in the morning. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Notice it went from this, the physical hunger to a spiritual filling, to being satisfied spiritually. And there is, just like there was with, with poverty, there here is a connection to those who are physically hungry, illustrating a desire for righteousness by looking to God for their provision. But they don't... They're, they're at, wits, they're at their wits' end on their own, right? They don't have any resources to look to, so they look to God alone for their provision. And so it's the physical circumstances that stimulate their, their spiritual condition. And there's an illustration of this. I don't know if you've read about this or seen this um, in a video before, but there was a Stanford marshmallow experiment that vividly illustrates this idea of delayed gratification. I've mentioned it before as well, um, actually, in our very first sermon in Acts, as the apostles were called to wait for the coming of the Spirit, and that idea of waiting and how challenging and difficult it can be to wait, especially for young kids who have a marshmallow sitting on a plate right in front of them. Here's one marshmallow. You can eat it now, but if you wait 15 minutes for the instructor to come back, I'll give you an extra marshmallow, and you can have two. And about two-thirds of the kids maybe squirmed around for a little bit, but eventually ate the marshmallow. Um, a third of them handled, were able to make it the whole way, and, and they did everything they could to avoid looking at that marshmallow. I mean, they would get under the table, they would close their eyes, they would play, they would daydream that they're somewhere else, they were wandering around the room just doing anything they could to distract them from thinking about the marshmallow that was in front of them. But the, uh, the question that the, that the study had, the researchers had in mind was, 
those who are capable of waiting, those who are capable of receiving you know, that reward at the end, how, how different will they be in, in the future? Will they be more successful? And in fact, the study showed that they, they tended to have higher level of education, higher rate of success in life. Um, they, they lived healthier lives. And so it tended to prove the point that those who could wait, those who could come into their circumstances and find a way of getting a different perspective on it, distract them from the trial and the suffering and the pain that they were going through, which in this case is pretty minuscule, right? The desire to taste this marshmallow. But if they could distract themselves from that, then they would be rewarded. And I do think in some way that this is Jesus teaching us the value of delayed gratification. The satisfaction that awaits is far superior to the food that the hungry lack now. The benefits and blessings that await us is far superior than any blessing we can receive in this life. If they could persevere through their hunger pains, they would be rewarded at the marriage supper of the Lamb, feasting for eternity with our Lord and Savior face to face. That should be our longing. And when we have that perspective, it really doesn't matter how much food we have on our plate today. Right? We can rejoice. So whether you're poor, whether you're hungry, or even whether you're sad, he goes on, blessed are those who weep now for they shall laugh. This is the Greatest paradox, right? Happy are the sad. Happy are you when you're sad. And this is probably related specifically to the next beatitude, which emphasizes an unjust suffering, right? That you're, you're sad for something that has been done to you in an unjust way. Um, the source of their joy is found in God alone. And he's the one who secures eternity for them. And so they will laugh, even though they weep now. Again, this was an Old Testament reality. This was an Old Testament uh, promise that, that the saints received and experienced, right? When they returned from exile, uh, Psalm 126 records how they were restored with their joy and to begin to sing songs again when they had hung up the harps as they returned back to their land, as God begins to satisfy them to, to fulfill their desires, experience a restoration of joy. And of course, there's also a messianic angle to this. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 61, which we've already referenced um, from Luke 4, where it's quoted Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, you just go one more verse, which, which isn't quoted, but was probably in the, in the back of Jesus' mind as he's preaching this, says this, to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, or to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So he is fulfilling this as the Messiah. He is bringing joy to those who are sad, those who have been weeping. Clearly, Jesus here is fulfilling the Old Testament, not unhitching himself from it. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as we read in Isaiah 53, 3. So our greatest example of one who dealt with sorrow and sadness is the Lord himself. He wept that Jerusalem rejected him. He, found, he comes into the city and looks upon it and just is filled with sorrow, with tears, because they've rejected him. 
And even Hebrews tells us that the joy set before him caused him to endure the cross, despising the shame. It was the joy that he knew awaited on the other side of the cross. Going through the most excruciating pain, not just the physical pain of the of his death on the cross, but of course feeling the wrath of God for the weight of sin, the sin of his children. And so when that is poured out upon him, he endures through it, despising the shame because of the joy set before him. Again, whether you're poor, whether you're hungry, whether you're weeping now, there is an eternal perspective that we can have that gives us fulfillment, that gives us satisfaction this is also clear in the last section, verses 22 through 23, dealing with the persecuted. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Notice it's qualified there. It's not just that you're persecuted because, because you're a bully or that you're persecuted because of your personality. It's you're persecuted because of your belief in the Son of Man. It's because of your union with Christ that you're being persecuted. Jesus is specifically concerned here with religious persecution. And Christians will suffer because of their faith in Jesus. It's, it's countercultural for us to shun popularity. Right? We want to be popular. We want to be liked. We want people to love us. And so here we're reminded that that that's not always going to be the case. Right? That some will despise us simply because we call ourselves Christians. And Romans chapter 3, or chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. So it's preparation for eternity. It's the suffering we endure now, the persecution we experience now, which we have to admit is, is fairly, is quite minor for many of us in America. But around the glo- globe, there are Christians who are suffering great loss because of their faith. And we keep them in mind as we read passages like this and we pray for them and we lift them up and we do what we can to support them. Right, but they're being prepared in their suffering for an eternal weight of glory. And the persecution of the prophets that Jesus mentions here, their fathers did so to the to um, to the prophets. They had God sent prophet after prophet, and what did they do? They they rejected his message. They they killed them. They persecuted them too. And you see this in Nehemiah nine. Uh, 26. And of course, that finds its climax in the very rejection of Jesus. We see in chapter 4, verse 24 of Luke, and he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his, home, in his hometown. He's referring to his own rejection there. In verse 29, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. So once again, he's rallying up his opponents here, if, if any of them are present in this crowd, which most likely there were some there, 
they're hearing this as a, as a challenge, right? Just like your fathers rejected the prophets over and over again, you're rejecting me. They would have been enraged once again. But our hope is because of our union with Christ. And I'm going to give one last quote from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If you have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Right? If we're united to him in his death, we're united to him in his life, and therefore we will reign with him, and he will remain faithful. Romans, uh, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? Because we're united to Christ, because he suffered and we're not above our master. And if he suffered, we will suffer as well. And so the Lord's favor, if you could summarize it, the Lord's favor here, that's, that's what blessed means. It's to receive the Lord's favor. It's, it's really much deeper than just happiness. The Lord's favor is upon those whose eternal reward far far outweighs their present pain. That's what the Beatitudes teach us, that the Lord's favor is upon those whose eternal reward far outweighs their present pain, their present suffering. All right, blessed is a much richer word than happiness. The reward is, is not earned by the recipients, but it's promised. It's a blessing that you've received by becoming his disciple. Blessed are you who are poor. You're, you're already blessed because of your union with Christ. So it's not an earned favor. It's given as a free gift. So the poor have the kingdom of God. The hungry shall be satisfied. Those who weep will laugh with great joy. And those who are persecuted for Christ's sake will rejoice for all eternity. Right? And so it's a matter of perspective. Do we see past our physical circumstances to value the spiritual blessings we already have in the present? And can we look beyond our temporary circumstances to have hope in the eternal inheritance that has been promised to us? These are the promises that Jesus has already secured for you if you're his disciple. So let us thank him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these blessings. We thank you.